Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Robin again. Just a quick update to say what you're about to hear is the first of the Byzantine Stories series. A show within a show to find the interesting stories that don't appear in our podcast narrative. This episode is for free, as you can tell, and if you want to hear parts two, three, and four, you can now buy them at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. This is also the signal that the next narrative episode is now available also for sale. It is the fundraising episode. If you're going to buy one podcast this year, please make it that one and support the podcast. If you have any questions, email me at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com or refer to the previous podcast where hopefully I explained what's happening with the sale. For now, enjoy Byzantine Stories. Byzantine Stories, Episode 1 John Chrysostom Part 1 Welcome to Antioch We're going back in time to before the history of Byzantium, deep into the history of Rome. We're going back to 350 AD, to Antioch, one of the greatest cities of the Roman Empire. This is before Khusro sacked the place and burnt it during Justinian's reign, or the arrival of the plague. In 350 AD, it was a thriving metropolis, home to something like 150,000 people. It was one of the great cities which Rome had conquered during its expansion, the former home of Alexander's generals, the capital of the Seleucid Empire, the end of the Silk Road, the largest city in the Levant, a city with a far greater reputation than Constantinople at this time. It had been the headquarters of Roman administration in the East for centuries. When emperors came to fight the Persians, they stayed in Antioch. Its royal palace was kept clean and tidy, waiting for their arrival. 
the governor of Syria lived here. The master of soldiers for the east would often stay, and his retinue would take up residence in the city, drinking and gambling when not on duty. The administrators who taxed the eastern provinces worked here. Messengers would pass through regularly, heading back and forth to the new imperial capital, still being built on the Bosphorus. Antioch was a stage on which transformations within the Roman world might take place, and in 350 AD a transformation was underway. Only 13 years earlier, the Emperor Constantine had departed this world, having made Christianity the dominant religion in the imperial pantheon. We know that the followers of Christ were already well on the way to establishing their dominance over the Mediterranean, but at the time, things seemed far less certain. Constantine's son, Constantius II, now governed the eastern provinces, and he was a Christian, despite his murderous relations with his family. But who was to say that the next emperor would also be a believer? New dynasties had risen and fallen at an alarming rate in the previous century, and brought persecutions with them. There was no guarantee that the sponsorship the church now enjoyed could not be stripped away by an angry imperator in the near future. It was into this world that John Chrysostom was born. It was to be men like John who would ensure that Christianity would triumph. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Before we begin exploring his life, I want to give you a deeper, more explicit picture of life in Antioch in 350 AD. That's what the Byzantine Stories series is all about. The narrative may skate the surface of the Roman pond, but these episodes will go deep into its waters to try and uncover a slice of daily life. Antioch was chosen to be an imperial city long before Rome arrived because of its strategic position. It guarded the entrance to Cilicia and the Taurus Mountains, a crucial area, as you are now fully aware. It was near the Mediterranean, giving it vital access to the rest of the Roman world, and it was not far from the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, the routes into Persia. Its specific location also made it an ideal defensive position. It was built in the Orontes River, literally in it. The city's centre was constructed on a small island in the middle of a fork in the river. Half a dozen bridges connected it to the rest of the city, but in times of crisis this small enclosure could become a fortress. This part of the city housed the Imperial Palace, the city's hippodrome and several bathhouses. On the east bank of the river, a colonnaded street connected to one of the bridges and led to Antioch's great high street. Shops lined the porticos and major business was done in the forum. While dotting the rows of houses and tenement buildings were temples, more bathhouses and a theatre. 
jostling for space too were the city's synagogues and its growing number of churches. The city's tall aqueduct snaked along the eastern edge of town. There's a map of the city on the website and several images to help you picture it. Adding to the city's defensive capabilities was Mount Silpius, which loomed over the city, dominating its eastern side. The city walls skirted along its foothills, and the ancient citadel peered down on the inhabitants below. Many wealthy families lived in or around Antioch. Its position at the end of the Silk Road meant that traders and merchants would make their final profit here, selling their wares so that they could be shipped west. While, as ever, across the ancient world, great landowners would reside in the city, while rent from their farms and other properties would roll in. Their city apartments were rarely the luxury villas with huge atriums that we might imagine from films or TV shows. The city just didn't have the space for that. They had country retreats, of course, and those with serious money would have a summer home in Daphne. Daphne was the Hamptons to Antioch's New York. Four miles from the city, this beautiful suburb was like a giant park of woods and springs where the rich would spend the hottest months of the year. The local Olympic Games were held there, near to the famous Temple of Apollo. As glamorous as it all sounds, and as eye-catching as those grand buildings could look, Antioch was home to poverty on a vast scale. Down on the streets, things were dirty, dangerous, and often deadly. The first thing to get your head around is the size of Antioch. When we hear the word city, it's hard not to imagine a place that fills the horizon. Our modern cities are giants by comparison to ancient ones. The city walls of Antioch only stretched for two miles in length and about one mile in width, a tiny space compared to most towns today. And yet living within that boundary were 150,000 people. We can assume that some lived outside the walls, but the vast majority didn't. People crammed themselves inside for security and to be close to food, water, and, of course, their jobs. We're talking about a population density of about 117 people per acre. For comparison, Chicago today contains about 21 people per acre. And when you consider that the huge public buildings took up lots of space, we're actually talking more like 190 people per acre. Even the island of Manhattan only has about 100 people per acre. And of course, thanks to its tall buildings, it can spread its population out vertically. In the Roman Empire, buildings never went above five stories, and rarely went as high as that. But what does 150,000 people jammed into two miles actually mean? For a start, it leads to tiny, cramped tenement buildings. Antioch was built on a grid plan, 
But soon those rationally planned streets were being encroached on as landlords tried to add width and height to their properties to find room for more people. And these structures were not carefully designed dormitories. They were jerry-built rooms on top of rooms that regularly collapsed because they couldn't take the strain of the humans and animals that lived inside. This was often caused by social concerns. The most desirable apartments were on the ground floor, and the higher you went, the poorer you were likely to be. Those who had nothing were thus living in large numbers to split the rent and making the top floors far heavier than those below. Often the structures were built with wood and the beams just couldn't take the load. Some would go to bed terrified that the roof might collapse on them in the night. Buildings which became unstable had to be pulled down and rebuilt, especially in Antioch because the city suffered from regular earthquakes. For the lucky residents whose home was still in one piece at the end of the day, would find no privacy inside. Often whole families would live in a room about the size of your bathroom. They'd often get to know their neighbours well. There were no glass windows and usually no wooden shutters, and the pathways between houses were only a couple of metres wide, meaning you could chat to the person living opposite without needing to raise your voice. You could hang skins or cloths over the window, but they didn't provide much protection from the wind and rain. And ventilation was needed because there was no fireplace or chimney, and so the smoke from cooking in your brazier would fill the room if you weren't careful. And that small fire was your only heat in winter. Everybody, rich and poor alike, were terrified of fire. If ten people are falling over one another in a cramped room and there's a fire going, it doesn't take much for accidents to happen. The buildings were made largely of wood, remember, and the open window would help spread the flames quickly. Probably most people spent as much time out of the home as possible. The large public spaces and the main street would be packed with people all the time. And of course, there were always the bathhouses. Yes, Antioch was as bath-crazy as anywhere, and fed by aqueducts with sewers below, they were a marvel of Roman cleanliness. Or so we might think. Unfortunately, the reality of daily life was very different. Even the biggest bathhouses could only cater to a few hundred people at once. They were really only available to those with money. The vast majority of people rarely used them. But at least they had access to clean water from those wonderful aqueducts, right? Yes. But the aqueducts could only deliver so much at once. A lot of water had to be stored in systems. And for the average family, it had to be collected in a jar and carried home. Untreated water that sits out will fairly quickly go stagnant allowing algae to grow, rendering malodorous and eventually undrinkable. The guesswork of modern historians suggests that this water was used only for drinking. Having lugged it all the way home, it seems unlikely that it was used for scrubbing floors or even for bathing 
The Romans didn't use soap either, so the poor of Antioch were filthy. It gets worse, I'm afraid. You may be aware of the public latrines which some bathhouses boasted. The water from the baths could wash away the deposits out of the city. But unfortunately, this level of sanitation was the exception. Even if Antioch maintained such a system, you can't expect people to get up in the middle of the night and jog to the nearest bathhouse. No, the Romans went in chamber pots in their rooms, or in communal pit latrines. These might double as the local garbage dump as well. Naturally, this attracted rats, insects, and disease. Together with filthy, the people of Antioch were smelly, diseased, and deformed. Life expectancy at this stage was as low as 30 for someone living in a city, and those that survived were often scarred from some illness or injury. We know this because the written contracts which survive often describe the distinguishing features of the parties involved. So between the diseases you might contract and the buildings which might fall on you, life in Antioch was short and not sweet. In order to stop the population from plummeting, an influx of new residents was always needed. When harvests failed or farms were flooded, people came to the cities looking for work. When the legions returned from their latest battle, retired or injured men would settle down and they would bring slaves with them as well. Antioch was as cosmopolitan a city as could be found in the ancient world. One writer claimed that there were 18 identifiable ethnic quarters in the city. We can easily imagine Syrians, Greeks, Persians, Jews, Italians, Samaritans, Arabs, Egyptians, and so on. But clearly there were more from all over the empire. And we shouldn't forget that this was the age of the barbarians. Goths, Franks, Vandals, Huns, and Alans were regularly being recruited into the army and stationed in cities like Antioch. Ethnic diversity on this scale and the constant arrival of immigrants make social integration very difficult. This meant crime was high in Antioch and rioting was a regular occurrence, as you are of course familiar with from our time in Constantinople. It was in these harsh, ugly conditions that Christianity was to triumph. Once established, the church began to offer charity to Antioch's poor and homeless. To widows and orphans it gave a new and expanded sense of family. To newcomers and strangers it offered an immediate network of friends. It created social solidarity amongst those struggling with ethnic or class conflict. It provided medical care to the sick and the dying. Christianity's caring ethic was to win it many converts. Led by men like John Chrysostom, the church was to convert the whole Roman world to a new way of being. 
In 350 AD, though, Antioch was still a battleground. A battleground for hearts and minds. And for souls. The pagan cults of old still continue to function, with Apollo receiving particular attention. Traditional weddings and funerals could be seen or heard every day in the streets, a reminder of the pull of the past. And pagan culture still had its champions. Antioch's resident promoter of the classics was the renowned professor of rhetoric, Libanius. In his mid-thirties, by 350, Libanius would become a powerful voice, arguing for a return to the traditional values of a Greek city. He railed against the Christians for their noisy and very public religious worship, which he felt excluded and intimidated other citizens, while also arguing that those who took vows of chastity were failing to create the next generation of good citizens who would keep civilization afloat. Libanius, like John, has a large body of written work which survived, giving us a unique glimpse into Antioch's daily life. As I mentioned before, this was the era when the Roman army became increasingly filled with men of barbarian stock, the era of Alaric and Stilicho. You often wonder if men at the time saw the danger and wanted to do something about it. Libanius was one such man. He felt soldiers' pay was not high enough because good Romans didn't want to sign up, and those that did seemed uninterested in protecting their homeland. He and John were on the same page when it came to the failings of the wealthy of the city. Libanius complains that the city's elites waste their time and money on huge houses for themselves or other ostentatious displays of wealth. Where John will demand they give to the poor, Libanius wants them to return to the era of civic pride and spend their money on entertainments and amenities for the benefit of their fellow citizens. Or indeed, on sacrifices to the gods. It should come as no surprise that Libanius was good friends with the future emperor, Julian the Apostate. We know that he was fighting a losing battle. And although John would lock intellectual horns with him, Chrysostom would prove far more concerned with the threat presented by the city's Jews. One of the most interesting things I've learned while researching this series is the fluidity of religious belief and practice in the ancient world. Just as we discovered with the arrival of Islam, the early days of Christianity were filled with men and women drifting in and out of Jewish practice, even as they called themselves Christians. When we travel through Antioch's streets, we don't find Jews and Christians wearing different clothes with different accents and turning their noses up at one another. Instead, we find overlapping communities competing soul for soul for adherence. The Jews were just as cultured as anyone else. Libanius wrote plenty of letters to the Jewish leaders using Homeric references that he clearly assumed they would understand, while John would have to issue stern warnings to his congregation not to join in with Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur when those celebrations were taking place, 
clearly many did. The ancientness of Jewish history, the discipline of its rules and regulations impressed the Christians. John would be appalled to discover members of his congregation slipping into the synagogue to conduct business negotiations. Why? Because they believed that oaths sworn in the Jewish place of worship would gain extra force. The Christians were by now a large portion of Antioch's population. Anyone travelling north from Palestine to spread Jesus' message was likely to pass through the city. Both Peter and Paul were said to have worked there, and Antioch's bishop had for a long time been seen as the leader of Eastern Christians, a position which had been made somewhat official by the First Ecumenical Council held at Nicaea in 325 AD. Amongst the ranks of the Christians, though, there was controversy and division which threatened the growth of the faith. This was the era of Arianism. The question of Jesus' nature had raged in the East at the beginning of the 4th century, and many in Antioch were far more comfortable and familiar with Arius' teaching than with the formulation which the Emperor Constantine had approved at Nicaea. As John grew up, there were three separate churches in Antioch struggling for supremacy. John was in one of the pro-Nicaea churches, but was very concerned by the split. One of the reasons I think you'll like John is that he has very little time for the hair-splitting doctrinal arguments. He walks a line not that far from Procopius, insisting that God's nature is incomprehensible and dismissing those who claim to understand it as utterly presumptuous. Another group of Christians causing controversy were the monks, or ascetics, who lived in the hills and wilds around the city. The term monk can get associated just with those who live in a monastery, so the term ascetic is more accurate. This refers to those who withdrew from society and lived a life of isolation and self-discipline. This had been an occasional pursuit for Greek philosophers over the centuries, but with the advent of Christianity, it had become a popular calling. Antioch was an ideal site to operate from because the slopes of Mount Silpius provided the necessary distance and deprivation to live in while being on the doorstep of a metropolis, which could provide much-needed supplies, supporters, and potentially medical care. These ascetics were loved by their fellow Christians, who viewed them as champions, winning special favour from God for their efforts. But they were disliked by others, especially when they entered the city at Easter, for example. Libanius called them that black-robed tribe that eats more than elephants. While well-meaning parents were appalled if their sons announced their intention to head for the hills, who would carry on the family name now? John, too, was drawn to this life, and would live as an ascetic for many years. But he would return to the city, and insist that the monks contribute to the health of the church.
So this is the stage on which John Chrysostom will make his entrance. In part two, we trace his early years as he grows up in the shadow of various imperial crises before living in the wilderness and eventually becoming a priest. Please do join me for his fascinating story. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.